Making memories that signify the beginning of a long life together. That's the basic idea of why we honeymoon after getting married. But sadly, there are too many cases where the memories are haunting because they actually signify the end of not just the marriage, but someone's life. Honeymoons can go bad in a lot of ways, but for the trips taken on this countdown, they went criminally bad. And just wait until we climb aboard number one. As we start a new season of Cram Countdown, we will be giving you a lot more details with each number, but we're really gonna dive headfirst into our number ones. And I've got a story this week that will have us all asking, accident or murder? you weirdos welcome to crime countdown a spotify original from parcast i am ash and i'm elena every week we'll highlight 10 fascinating stories of history's most engaging and unsettling crimes all picked by the parcast research gods this episode we're counting down the top 10 honeymoons gone wrong all right so now i'm excited i get to talk about my honeymoon for a second oh like, my god i was gonna talk about mine first though mine first i'm just kidding i haven't <laughs> i haven't wed what a fun opportunity well my honeymoon was in aruba and it was like nine years ago now which is wild you old so old um and it was by i'm serious it was by far the greatest vacation i have ever had that's like what it's supposed to be thus far uh the only thing that happened that could even like just be viewed even as like a little negative was that john lost his wedding band in the caribbean ocean within 24 hours of me placing it on his finger on the, <laughs> in the wedding ceremony yep. he was so upset like it was so he was like i remember him just standing up in the ocean and pointing to his finger like it's gone did you think he was playing a trick on you no because i was watching him because he was so excited to get into the ocean like the caribbean ocean he couldn't wait oh yeah he's such a fish and now it's like just a funny story we tell i know i remember you coming home and telling me that story and i was like is it okay to laugh like can i laugh but now i'm like funny now i'm still lolling at that (laughs) even though i'm sure it wasn't funny at the time but i i feel like in general people put so much pressure on their honeymoon being mm-hmm. like the best vacation ever yeah and it's like just chill out like you're probably tired you probably need a rest yeah just, just let it happen just don't put so much pressure on it exactly and in fact it was like even though it was kind of a bummer that he didn't have his original ring anymore we did laugh it off almost immediately because we just decided to enjoy the rest of it like yeah. just enjoy our time That's what there. you're there for and material things are just that like right. just let it go but yeah it should really just be about relaxing and enjoying being married like you just weddings are hard weddings are like expensive they're stressful they're just like a lot of planning so just relax and don't try to over plan it yeah it's too bad the people on this list didn't heed that warning (laughs) they did not relax these honeymoons were anything but relaxing elena has five of those honeymoons that went terribly wrong and so do i but neither of us knows which the other one has let's start the countdown I'll start us off with number 10, the death of Christy Cadman Jones. Christy and her husband Damien headed off on their honeymoon about six months after their wedding. They were traveling through Southeast Asia, including visiting Thailand and Vietnam before getting to Cambodia. But this is where the trip ended, when Christy mysteriously passed away in her sleep on January 9th, 2012. According to The Guardian, she died of morphine and codeine toxicity that was a result of taking heroin that she allegedly mistook for cocaine. Mistook or like was misinformed because I don't think that usually happens. Also, what a what a casual problem to have. Yeah. <laughs> what a casual mistake to make. It's a wild honeymoon. And if you Google pictures, like at first it sounds like a little crazy, but there are forms of heroin that do look like cocaine. Oh, look at that. Yeah, exactly. Google so, everybody. Google, the more you know. But, you know, then her husband's statements started to seem a little bit suspicious. Oh. And the deputy coroner was not buying the husband's answers to the questions at the inquest into her death back in the UK. The coroner said someone had contacted the couple's life insurance company the day Christy died. Come on. <laughs> but Damien said it wasn't him. So we gotta believe that, you know? Come on, Damien. No. The coroner also questioned Damien's motives to have his wife embalmed, saying it was like to cover up toxicology evidence. Hey. Which, 
You know, that would make sense. You know what? This coroner seems like right on it. He does. And Damien was not there for that. He claimed it was because he was told he needed to have embalming done 48 hours after death. And he did it so that Christie's mother could say goodbye to her daughter. Which, I guess you could see that side of it, too. Yeah. That's very fair. But now knowing that the two substances can look alike, it is seeming a little like, did was that an intentional mix-up? Was that mix a up? setup? Yeah. Right. Well, Damien also contradicted himself when at one point he left out whether he and his wife had been offered drugs, but then later stated that a couple they met asked if they wanted cocaine. Wow. Yeah, so it's like, what? Are, what's the truth here, Damien? Were you offered some? Or, or did were you, you not? not? Did you not get offered that? According to the BBC, Damien only named the couple as Terrence and Jess and said they all went back to their hotel room together. Terrence and Jess had a bag of cocaine, but Damien said he refused it, quote, on behalf of himself and his wife. But I but guess wait. she still <laughs> took it. Yeah, what? So if your wife dies because of someone else's drugs, why not help track those people down? You would think that would be something you'd want to do. I, th- I feel like I would want to do that. Yeah, I feel like I would want to do that, too. Yeah. And I think the deputy coroner would want someone to do that because he found Damien's testimony not credible and declared the circumstances of her death could not be clearly determined. Heck yeah to the deputy coroner. And the coroner believes that he may have been able to get a charge of unlawful killing, but didn't believe he could prove the husband's involvement beyond reasonable doubt. Oh, that's a shady one. It's wicked shady. And then it's like, so there's no justice here. Yeah, because everybody kind of knows... But they don't know. Damien definitely knows what's up, and he's gonna I mean, he's gonna tell us someday. I mean, Damien Damien knows some things. Tell us all. I bet he knows a couple of things. I'm not saying what things. I'm just saying he knows some stuff. Yeah, that's, that's all. That's fine. Yeah. Nine. Number nine on our countdown is Aurore Martin and Peter Uva Schmidt. This Belgian couple was called the Diabolical Lovers by the media in their home country. That's because these two lovers were also murderous con artists who killed their newlywed spouses to collect the insurance money. Whoa. Yeah. Just really, really getting into it here. We're, just, we're not burying the lead at all. It's I just guess like, not. Boom. Aurora and Peter met in 1991, but they needed some cash. So they did what any logical human would do. Peter married someone else. Oh, okay. That's what you do, right? Yeah, that's that's always what I've done. And then, crazy story, about five months into the marriage, Peter and his new wife's car plunged off a ramp into a canal. Sounds totally accidental. Nuts. We're, this is even crazier. What? Peter was unharmed. Yeah. Nuts. So crazy. Wow, what, what luck. His wife's body washed up on shore three days later, and within no time, Peter collected nearly half a million bucks from her life insurance policy and headed off to Florida to be with Aurora. A love story for the ages. I'm already so mad at this. Isn't this so precious? I hate Peter. I don't understand why. But years later, the money ran out, and it was Aurora's turn to financially support them. So what's going to happen here? Is she going to marry someone and drive somewhere else off of something? In May 1995, Aurora was on her honeymoon in Corsica with her new husband, Mark Van Beers. Well, tragically, the car they were driving crashed over a cliff and into a deep ravine. You know, it's so crazy how that just like happens to the same people. There's a lot of coincidences here. And almost, you know, maybe they are meant to be together because there's a lot of the same stuff happening. Yeah, or maybe they like shouldn't be. Or maybe they are evil. I don't know. Magically, Aurora survived after being thrown from the car at the last minute. So lucky. I'm also like, wow, because clearly this is not coincidental. Like, no. how did you guys both manage to survive that? Like, yeah, the plan, he- the planning here is really planning was impeccable. I guess it's next level. I will say that, but it's terrible. It's evil. Next, diabolical is a perfect way to describe it. it. Is to describe these lovers. Lovers. Well, she wasted no time getting that eight hundred thousand dollar insurance payout, and then requested her husband be cremated. Always sus. Weird. Thankfully, the Van Beer family was not buying it, because once Mark's body was re-examined, it was determined that he'd been beaten to death with a baseball bat by men hired by Peter Schmidt before the car went off the cliff. There's how they do it. Oh, okay. There you go. According to The Guardian, Mark Van Beer's last words were, 
please don't hurt my wife. That's heartbreaking. Tell me that doesn't feel oh like just a gosh. knife to the chest. That's terrible. Please don't hurt my wife. These people are beyond evil. Time Magazine reported that Peter confessed to both crimes, and the couple was reportedly in search of their next victim when they were arrested. It's, why? Thank goodness they were caught. Clearly they were doing this like for a lot more than the money too. Like I think they oh, started yeah. to enjoy it, obviously. Absolutely. That's Absolutely. so messed up. It's the diabolically evil. Eight. Number eight on our countdown of the top 10 honeymoons gone wrong is convicted killer and Florida's finest, Michael Escoto. Escoto and his wife, Wendy, had only been married for four days in 2002 when he bludgeoned her to death in an attempt to collect a million dollar life insurance payout. Sounds familiar. (laughs) Instead, he ended up in jail for life. It's always the insurance money. It's like, come on, all of them. As it turns out, Michael Escoto also had a girlfriend while married for those four days. Awesome. Classy man all around, you know? So great. Now his girlfriend, Yolanda, actually testified at the murder trial and said that Escoto's plan was to make his wife's death look like an accident. Cool that you know that. Yeah, it's like, (laughs) you shouldn't have known that and let that happen. Very cool. He would drug her first and then let her drown in a jacuzzi while basically unconscious from the drugs. Wow. That's so sad. That's, that's savage. And what a way to go. Jeez. But the plan got screwed up when Wendy woke up in the water and began to struggle. Yolanda, according to CBS, claimed that's when Escoto drove his semi-conscious new bride to her house and then to the warehouse district where he allegedly bludgeoned her with a tire iron and asphyxiated her. What? A tire a iron. tire iron? That's another level of evil. And then asphyxiated her. Why did you have to do both of those My things? My God. Yolanda admitted she did not witness the murder, but was waiting in her car while it happened. But did she see Escoto toss the tire iron into the Biscayne Bay? Probably. Yolanda, what, what are you doing? Like, when you hear about a murder plan, call the police. When you hear about a murder plan, do not go to the person to the murder plan. The number to the police is super duper easy. It's like three numbers. Yeah. You got this. Don't get mixed up in that. Well, 10 years later in 2012, for her testimony, Yolanda got immunity and Escoto was found guilty of first degree murder, thankfully. Good. The prosecutor on the case said at the sentencing, quote, Wendy's life was short, but her road to justice was long. It was also at this hearing that Escoto was denied a retrial and sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Good. So at least justice was served in this one. But also Yolanda should have got some time here. It's always so frustrating when people get off of like a like a crazy sentencing just because they have information. I know. And it's like, I know you need the information, so you need it as a bargaining chip. It's but unfortunately they necessary. But that's the thing. It's always like, how do they just get to walk away? When they sat in a car while some while somebody bludgeoned and asphyxiated their unconscious wife that they already drugged and tried to drown. You, you knew it was Come happening. Come on, that's like, you have some evil in there. Right. Seven. At number seven this week is Brian Umphrey and Cassandra Petrie. Brian and Cassandra were honeymooning in Pigeon Forge, Tennessee, when Brian killed Cassandra in their hotel room. He then went on the run from police before being caught. But what's more unfortunate is this was the second time these two had been married, but not the first time Cassandra's family knew Brian was trouble. Uh Uh-oh. This is a wild one. Brian and Cassandra had been married once before, but he also had an extensive criminal record of assaults, thefts, and forgeries. So Brian eventually ended up in prison. Wow, I'm shocked by that. (laughs) Cassandra's family isn't clear on why Brian was locked up, but he allegedly stole Cassandra's car and drained her bank account. Seems pretty black and white. I I feel like that might be why, (laughs) I don't know. Usually those things will lead you to going to prison. Yeah, I mean, those are bad things. So while Brian went to prison, Cassandra divorced him, but still visited him in prison, which like, oh, come on. Oh no. And once he was out, they were right back together. Oh no. 
people around the couple knew that domestic violence definitely was a factor, and Brian even once put Cassandra in the hospital. Which See, that's is so terrible. And that's what's so sad. It is so hard to get out of a situation yeah. like this, no matter how many times you try. Like, it's so hard. It is, and this is a perfect example, and this, is e- this makes it even sadder. Cassandra did have children, not with Brian. They knew how bad and abusive Brian was, and according to Cassandra's mother, they were also told to lie about the second wedding. Oh, so people that's, weren't supposed to know that they got remarried. That's messed up. Yeah, you can't never do that make to your, your kids, kids lie to like for something you're doing. It's just don't do it. No. The two did remarry, obviously, and went to Pigeon Forge for their honeymoon, which is a classic honeymoon spot in that area. I didn't know that. But when Cassandra didn't return calls or arrive back at her friend's house to get her kids, police were called. February 8th, 2010, investigators arrived at the Days Inn in Pigeon Forge and found Cassandra in the bed, stabbed multiple oh, times. No. Brian was immediately ID'd as a suspect and fled. He led the police on a car chase until he got stuck in the mud and was caught. I love that he got stuck in the mud. That was the earth reclaiming you. It was. <laughs> Brian was charged with first degree murder. In 2011, he was sentenced to 35 years in prison after pleading guilty to second degree murder. Oh, I wonder why it was second degree murder. Mm. Interesting. Six. Landing at number six is newlywed Scott Rostin and Karen Waltz. Scott and Karen were on their honeymoon cruise along the Mexican coastline back in February 1988, when at some point Karen mysteriously fell off the ship. Hmm. Scott first claimed his wife was blown off the boat by high winds. Oh, never heard of that happening. (laughs) Wow. Then changed his story, saying that she was murdered by others to get revenge on him. But then Karen's body was recovered. When Scott first reported that his new bride had gone overboard, he continually changed his story, first to the ship's staff captain and then to the FBI agents, who you probably shouldn't lie to. Yeah, that's always a really good sign when the story changes like dramatically (laughs) over and over again. Exactly. It was always a variation of the couple being on the ship's running track and strong winds pushing her over, with him either grabbing her hands or not being able to grab her hands, but unable to rescue her either way. What kind of tornado slash monsoon slash typhoon slash hurricane was happening that this woman was blown off a running track and into the ocean and was nobody else outside like why didn't everybody else get blown off the boat well that it's like did they did it literally lift her in the air and then just throw her into the ocean right or did it make her like stunt like this doesn't make any sense well and also there's like walls not one bit of sense is made here no And for that reason, Scott was arrested by the FBI with a warrant from the Bahamas who owned the ship for murder on high seas. That's such a charge to get. I know, murder murder on on the the high seas. seas. That would also be a great like summer novel. It it has to be already. I'm sure it is. (laughs) Well, then he bizarrely changed his story yet again to say that the Israeli government killed Karen and framed him for the crime. You know, as they do, of course. So he went from one preposterous thing just to a totally different. He was like, she didn't actually get picked up by the winds. I know that was a crazy thing to say. Uh, I, I do have to tell you something crazier, though. It was the Israeli government. It's either the Israeli government or it's Mother Nature who killed her. It's one or the other. I just couldn't remember. Yeah. I, was, I, was I was shook. I confuse them a lot. So, yeah. Well, after a court appearance, his lawyer stated, quote, he feels that this murder is the result of a book he published last year in New York City in which he exposed the numerous human rights abuses which he perceived in Israel. Huh. I just, I don't understand why those two things would correlate. But this would just be a lot. It truly would. Now, Karen Waltz's body was found about 10 hours after going overboard, 30 miles from the coast of San Diego. A medical examiner determined that she drowned but there were signs of strangulation on her body. Eek. Which I feel like the Israeli government didn't do that. I don't know. In a sworn affidavit from the FBI filed in federal court, it stated that Karen's body had a goose egg type bump on her forehead, dark coloration around the eyes, marks of undetermined origin on her neck, indications of blunt force injuries and abrasions, and a tiny puncture wound below her left breast. What? So she was not picked up by the high winds. She was absolutely not blown overboard by wind. No way. Wow. 
According to the LA Times, it also stated that medium brown hair was found embedded in the rubberized jogging track, along with a broken earring matching one Karen Rostin was wearing in a photograph taken at a shipboard dinner. And for the record, the Coast Guard reported that winds in the area when Karen went overboard were only four miles per hour or five miles per yeah. hour. Okay. The fact that her hair was embedded into the... That's horrifying. That's terrifying, because it's like, what happened what on that track? What happened? And on the track? Right, and how did nobody see anything? If, yeah, no one was around? I mean, clearly she was beaten on that track. Yeah. It's terrible. Luckily, though, Scott Rostin was found guilty of second-degree murder on the high seas in March of 1989. Wow, that's horrifying. Wow, that last one. Always that last one. That, when we get to, to this that part. last one. And then we're just like, where do we go? Where do we go from here? I just don't understand on that last one how nobody saw anything. Yeah. I mean, that's wild. That's and so crazy. Honestly, these are so sad because it's people who just got married. Why right. are they murdering their spouse already? That's insane. Yeah, you can't do that. Like, you should never do that. You just said you wouldn't do, do that, right actually. Now. Yeah. Like, I'm going to protect you and stuff. And stay with you. Like, don't. Don't do that. Yeah. <laughs> and, like, one of yours, it's like, don't get married and then, or decide that you don't want to be married and, like, you want to make a life of crime marrying other people and killing yes, them. Yes. That's so, well, like, just get jobs together. You can be married. Right. It's allowed. It's a, it's a thing. This is just so weird. And now it's, these are only the, the lower five. I know. It's kind of making me nervous for my own honeymoon. Wait, just honestly, wait until you hear number one. That's all I'm saying. Imagine living with a secret so big that if anyone ever found out, it would change everything. Imagine carrying that secret with you every day, desperate to one day get it off your chest. Do you think you could take a secret like that to the grave? I'm Estefania Hakeman, host of the new podcast series, Deathbed Confessions, the show where we dive deep into the most explosive things people have admitted to while drawing their last breath. From murder, fake identities, heists, illicit affairs, and even top government secrets. This season on Deathbed Confessions, we investigate cases like Frank Thorogood, the construction worker who claimed that the drowning of Rolling Stones founder Brian Jones was no accident. Margaret Gibson, a silent film actress who, while dying of a heart attack, confessed to one of the most famous unsolved crimes in Hollywood history. And ex-CIA officer Howard Hunt, who on his deathbed confessed to playing a role in the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. Deathbed Confessions is a Spotify original from Parcast, airing episodes weekly starting July 21st. Follow and listen to Deathbed Confessions for free on Spotify. All right, let's jump back in with number five on our countdown of Honeymoons Gone Wrong. Starting off the second half of our list is Killers Claudius Giesick and Sam Corey. This story is a literal movie set in the mid-70s between Texas and New Orleans, where the plot is a powerful businessman, Sam Corey, and a lowlife con man, Claudius Giesick, use a clueless, desperate woman to try to make extra money from her death. Let's meet our characters. Sam Corey, a massage parlor owner who's expanding his business during a time when massage parlors are considered illicit and in some places, illegal. An illicit massage parlor? You know. He also decides to run for mayor of San Antonio, partly for fun, and has some of his masseuses run for city council on the same ticket. <laughs> what? That's, Why? That's right, because who doesn't want an entire cabinet full of masseuses? <laughs> like they wouldn't get a lot done for the place. I feel like everybody would just be really relaxed. Yeah, nobody would have neck tension. That's no, what you're supposed to have if you work in an office. There you go. And he flaunts the fact that people think he and his businesses are gross. He's owning it. He's like, <laughs> vote for me, I'm disgusting. He's like Lisa Rinna on The Housewives. I'm owning it. Own it. Just own it. He meets up with a con man, Claudius Giesick, who initially came into Corey's massage business under a fake name to sell him on a phony credit card scam. So already this is just... <laughs> 
Everybody's really on the up and I up I feel like here. he's going to say, no, 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 don't scam me, but let's scam everybody else together. You want to scam together? This was a good meet cute. This is a real good meet cute. Don't ever try to mess with me <laughs> don't again. Don't scam me. Uh-uh. We'll scam everyone else. So this is just so two shady men meet under shady circumstances and somehow form some kind of weird, twisted, toxic, scammy, shady friendship. Again, I love a good meet cute. It is it is a good meet cute. Now, during his trial, Giesick testified what happened next was, around November 1973, Sam Corey basically blackmailed him, which I'm shocked that this did not go swimmingly. Yeah, why wouldn't you expect that? So he was saying he should marry a woman and the two should kill her for insurance money. That took a very dark turn. Right? It escalated so quickly. I'd say I should not do that. And if Giesick didn't agree, Corey would turn him in knowing he was wanted for a bad check charge. So Giesick agreed. Again, that agreeing to murder instead of, you know, it's this is a whole thing of like, I'm going to just agree to murder instead of just dealing with this like, I wrote a bad check. Well, I was just going to say, like, it's like, bad check, you're going to get in some trouble, but probably not as much trouble as murder. It, it's like, And you won't have that on your conscience. So you're just willing to straight up murder an innocent woman rather than be like, yes, I, I signed that bad check. Right. Wild. Truly wild. Well, he soon met Patricia Albanowski. She was young, often described as confused, desperate for love, and worked as a masseuse. Stop that! Already my heart aches. Barely a month after meeting her, he proposed, and despite many, many hesitations, Patricia agreed. Oh no. At the time of their honeymoon, Giesick took out an enormous life insurance policy, shocked, crazy, and and would disappear without warning. Which, these are all red flags that Patricia was noticing. Oh, obviously. well, I'm glad she noticed them. While out for a walk near the bayou in New Orleans, Sam Corey was waiting in his car for the signal. Giesick flashed his flashlight and pushed Patricia in front of the car that Sam Corey was driving. Oh my God, no. Her skull and hips were crushed. She died nine hours later despite medical treatment. The two were caught and the entire investigation revealed their plan. Giesick got a lesser sentence for turning on Sam Corey. No, they should again, both get the same sentence. That's what I'm saying. The entire case and trial raises the question, did Sam Corey, the powerful businessman, con the younger, good-looking con man for a cash grab? It makes you wonder whether Sam Corey would have eventually turned on Claudius Giesick once he got his money. He definitely would have. Which I say he definitely would have. Yeah, this whole setup was the worst thing ever. That's definitely what would have happened. Right. And that's so sad. Like he, so you're you take your new wife out for a nice walk on the bayou in right? New Orleans, and then you shove her in front of a car. I know. And what a way to do what that. What a if way to do that. Murder is always bad, but that is insane. Yeah, that's just something about it. So sad. Four. Landing at number four this week is the drowning death of Tina Watson. Tina was on her honeymoon 11 days after her wedding in 2003, scuba diving on the Great Barrier Reef with her new husband, Gabe. During their dive, something went wrong and Tina tragically drowned. What exactly went wrong is the question, because despite pleading guilty to manslaughter in an Australian court, Gabe continued to say he was innocent. On October 23, 2003, the Honeymooners were on a 50-foot deep wreck dive with a group to see a 350-foot steamer that sank in 1911, which that sounds like the best time ever. I was going to say, that sounds so cool. I love a good Terrifying, shipwreck. but cool. Not when it happens, but the aftermath of diving and looking at it. Yeah. Now, Gabe told ABC News, quote, I kind of figured we're on vacation. They're going to be very easy, calm, nice, pretty dives. But it turns out there was a strong underwater current, so it was really a dive advanced diver should have done, and Tina was not experienced. I'm already terrified by this. Yeah, and you hate water, so I feel like this is just gonna... Yeah, this is like really giving me a lot of anxiety. It's gonna make it ten times worse. Well, to accomplish the dive, the divers pulled themselves down by an anchor line to the ship. They then would let go and free dive across the shipwreck and grab another line on the other end to pull themselves back up. But once they let go of their first anchor line, Gabe told ABC News, that's where things went wrong. He stated, as soon as we let go, we were moving, moving quite a bit. It was definitely not what I was expecting, and neither was Tina. And that's when something went wrong for Tina. 
Gabe says as he tried to help them both get to the anchor line, she hit his face mask and he let go of her. She was struggling and sank to the bottom of the ocean. Now this is where the suspicion of Gabe comes into play, because instead of going after her, he swam to the top to get help. Yeah, because see, up until this point, you're like, yeah, that makes, like, all of this sounds highly probable. Right. Because swimming from one anchor line to another that deep to me sounds super dangerous absolutely horrifying and if there's a strong undercurrent yeah you might drift and then freak out right and panic and especially because she's not an advanced diver well so the only thing that i can say though is that like he didn't go swim down to get her is he was probably scared that he was gonna get caught in the undercurrent yeah if you're gonna play devil's advocate which is very easy to do in this case yeah. it's like that's the thing so, but I feel, I mean, I feel like I would want to go after my spouse. You might want to, but in the situation, you might not like react that way. Because when things like this happen, your brain isn't like really operating. That's true. Like at a full, you're just like panicking. But I feel like this is one of those situations where it's like, you'll always go after your spouse. Yeah, I I would would always go straight to my spouse, regardless of like a train coming. Whoops, it's going to hit me. I'm going after him (laughs) instead of running the other way, you know? Well... Gabe told ABC News, I don't think I was making rational choices at that point. I don't know what I would have done had I stayed with her. I don't know that there's anything that I was actually capable of doing. A dive master did go down and recover Tina, and the crew worked to save her, but they couldn't. Gabe ended up pleading guilty in Australia to manslaughter for failing to save his drowning wife after determining that his extensive diving experience and an underwater camera showed he fully could have saved her. And there it is. And it's like, I didn't know that he yeah. had the diving experience when I first was doing this. And yeah. I was like, oh, okay. And then yeah. the second time around, I was like, oh, well, you have, you're a, like, oh, yeah, you have you, experience. And he's like, I don't know what I could have done. Well, you're an experienced diver. Right. So, so you so should know what you're supposed so, to do. So you could have uh, dove and got her. Right. Exactly. Now, he pleaded not guilty in America to murder after serving prison time in Australia for over a year. American courts found that he had not committed murder and the charges were dismissed. Hmm. Scuba experts in America determined that the conditions of the dive were challenging and that Tina was an inexperienced diver who drowned in a way that was not uncommon. But some people suspect that his U.S. trial was driven by political motives because the attorney general championed that case and justice for Tina Watson during his re-election season. This this is really one of those that... I don't think we'll ever have the real answer no. for what happened here. Because it is it is highly probable that this was an absolute accident. Yeah, exactly. But it's there's some shady things in here. Three. Number three on our countdown of honeymoons gone wrong, Shreen Dewani. Dewani is a British millionaire whose wife, Annie, was murdered during a carjacking in Cape Town, South Africa, while the couple was on their honeymoon. It quickly became a high-profile case of a violent robbery gone wrong that actually points to conspiracy and still has one lingering question. Was Shreen Dewani in on the plan? November 2010, Shreen and his wife Annie were being driven by taxi driver Zola Tongo when they were carjacked by two armed men. Tongo was eventually let go by the gunman, and eventually so was Shreen. The next day, Annie is found dead in the backseat of the stolen taxi, having been shot in the head. Oh my gosh, that's terrible. Yeah, no matter how this spins out, it's terrible. According to the BBC, within days, the gunmen were found and arrested. And so was the taxi driver, Zola Tongo, all charged with robbery, kidnapping, and murder. After being arrested, the taxi driver, Tongo, pointed the finger at Shreen as the mastermind of the kidnapping plot to have his wife killed. What? Which is like, oh, so you're going to hire these like bad people, and then it's going to be shocking to you that they turn and point the finger at you and be like, that bad guy did yes. it? And what... If it was just the taxi driver and these two, like, hitmen, mm-hmm. why? What are they getting? Well, and then in that case, they would have killed the husband and the wife, you exactly. would Exactly. Why would you keep one of them alive? Yeah, it, it and they didn't get anything. Up. Like, they didn't, they didn't try to get ransom. They didn't do anything. Didn't steal so, like, anything. What's the reason for this? Yeah. It doesn't make any sense. The only way that this makes any kind of, like, twisted sense is if the husband is involved. Which he definitely is, I'm it seems. I'm just saying... 
But Shreen had already left the country and spent years fighting extradition to face charges in South Africa. I'm, I don't like him. Shreen was finally brought back and tried in a case that made global headlines. The trial unearthed that he was cheating with people he met online, but his murder charges were ultimately dismissed. The driver was sentenced to jail for 18 years, finding that he had played a role in addition to the actual South African men involved in the carjacking. Two prolific forensic investigators and authors untangled the story of her murder and assert that details of the case show Shreen had conversations with the driver prior to the day of the murder. And why would he have that? Yeah, like, that's not normal. During the trial, there was also conflicting testimony that said Annie wanted to get pregnant or that she actually didn't want to go on the honeymoon trip because the two of them didn't mesh well as a couple. Uh-oh. Shreen is still trying to rebuild his reputation. Well, I hope it fails if he actually did want to murder her. Good luck, Shreen. That last one is just... I don't know what to say about it. Yeah, that one's weird stuff. Like that one's fishy for sure. Yeah, if the taxi driver is pointing a finger and saying like this guy's the one who like got us all to do this, it seems fishy. Because what? Like he has no good reason for saying that. Yeah, that's the thing. He's got everything to lose and really nothing to gain. It's not like he's going to get less time for Mm -hmm. that. So it doesn't make sense. And then number four, I had heard of the Tina Watson case before, but hearing it again, it's confusing. But you're, (laughs) yeah, and I've read like accounts of it that. When I first read it, I was like, oh, he did something. Right. This was on purpose. And then I've read some that I'm like, this looks like an accident. I feel like it's one of those cases that you'll just go back and forth like all the time with. Yeah. It's another one of those that I don't think we'll ever have the answer. That is hard to grasp. Yeah, it always is. But these next two are going to be good. Oh, just wait till number one. We're down to the final two spots on our countdown of Honeymoons Gone Wrong. At number two is Ben and Catherine Mullaney. July 12, 2008, Ben and Catherine got married in South Wales surrounded by friends and family. Two days later, they flew to Antigua in the Caribbean for a two-week honeymoon. But a few weeks later, the newlyweds were laid to rest after being shot in their hotel room, and Antigua faced major attention for the crime. The way The Guardian describes the police station near the Cocos Hotel, where Ben and Catherine stayed, is a ramshackle structure on the side of a hill, its crumbling roof popped up by wooden scaffolding. Sounds awesome. Sounds like exactly where I'd want a honeymoon. Sounds very comforting. Yeah, yikes. Strong. And that's secure. Pol- yeah, right. And that police station, by the way, has roughly a dozen officers. So that paints the picture of the remoteness of this area. Good. Despite this being a picturesque place with a shack for a police station, it's not without its crime problems. One of the commanding officers there stated, We've had killings before, but not like this. Not visitors. It's shocking. It's not a thing you want to see happen. Now, Ben and Catherine spent the first few nights of the honeymoon camping in an unknown location before checking into the hotel. On their last night around 5 a.m., two men came into their cottage, shot the couple in the back of the heads, and stole their cell phones, a digital camera, and a small amount of money. It's so sad and just like, so like like they said so shocking and it's like if you honestly if you came in there they probably would have just given you all those items like just take it yeah that's the other thing now Catherine died instantly and ben was taken to the hospital but unfortunately died a week later so sad antigua scrambled to salvage its reputation as a tourist destination as their murders made headlines globally these kind of things demolish tourism in these places for a little while it's such a hit yeah it's sad but honestly like i you can't blame people for not wanting to go there because think about it with aruba and the natalie natalie holloway Uh thing that was a big hit to them for a while that's the major thing that i think of and like with a case like this and you can't blame it all on the you know the island or the country or wherever it is everywhere it's like but it's hard not to think about it right A preacher who lives on the island told The Guardian, unless we really do something about all this, I don't know if we can consider ourselves a safe place. Mm. Which highlights the impact crime has on local economies, like we were just saying. We actually talked about this too a little bit in our Twisted Spring Break Crimes episode. Exactly. 
drugs, gang, and inequalities have been cited as a problem for the rise in crime and for a small community that can be devastating. Oh, yeah. The killers in this case luckily were found after they struck again and broke into a store to kill a shop owner. Oh, my gosh. It's like, calm down. Stop doing this. Chill. You don't need to rob people again. Get a job. Oy. They were tried and convicted three years after the attack, and they never gave a motive. Wow. Isn't that so scary? Like, not even, like, there's not even a, a, a terrible motive. Like, I just want money. And, well, I think that probably was the motive. But it's that's like, what it sounds like. There's no motive here. Like, that's so scary. And just ridiculous. Ben and Catherine's family launched the Mullaney Fund to support UK students with medical school ambitions like Catherine and to keep the memory of their daughter alive. That's so sad. So at least something good came of this, but oh. that's so sad. One. And that brings us to number one on our countdown of the top 10 honeymoons gone wrong, the disappearance of George Smith. About a week into his honeymoon, the morning of July 5th, 2005, George was gone, missing from his cabin aboard a Royal Caribbean cruise ship. His new wife, Jennifer, had no recollection of the night before only that the two drank way too much. When she woke up that morning, George wasn't in bed and there was blood on the lifeboat beneath their balcony. That is sus. Very sus. So let's take you to the morning of July 5th. Jennifer woke up on July 5th and was still in her clothes from the night before. George was not in bed, but Jennifer didn't assume anything bad. So she keeps her spa appointment and heads off to her massage. Hmm. Already. It's a little weird. I don't know if I just, every relationship is different, but if yeah. I wake up, especially on vacation, and my husband is no longer in the bed with me, I would question what's happening. Yeah, I would check a few places before I went to get my massage. Yeah, I would definitely not keep my spa appointment. Mm -hmm. I can tell you that much. That same morning, passengers two floors below George and Jennifer's cabin noticed blood on a metal overhang above a lifeboat which must have been the scariest thing to ever say, see. Imagine you're also on vacation and you're like, oh, hey, what's that? Oh, blood? Are, okay. Do you want me to make it worse? No. Do you want me to? The blood patterns resembled handprints, fingerprints, and footprints, uh. suggesting someone had tried desperately to rescue themselves from going into the water. That's terrifying. That is so haunting. I don't like that at all. Greenwich Magazine references the ship's captain supporting the accident theory, having noticed what he thought was, quote, a butt print in the dew atop the Smith balcony railing, which would suggest that George was sitting on the railing drunk and fell off. Right. Which happens for sure. Of course. But many disagree, including George's family who say he was murdered. And if you trace back his steps from the night before, it's easy to point some fingers. Oh, I'm gonna need you to take me back again. So here we are. We're gonna get in our time machine and we're gonna we're gonna go back to the night of July 4th. Here I am. We're here. The last people to see George were four young men he allegedly partied with the night of July 4th. One of them, Rusty Kaufman, was the focus of the investigation, although no charges were ever brought against him. Rusty claims via his lawyer to ABC News, that he met George and Jennifer in the ship's casino that night and they had some drinks. He said the couple was very drunk at that point. Rusty also says, as have others in the casino, that Jennifer was not just intoxicated, but flirting with other men. And this led to a confrontation between George and Jennifer. On their honeymoon, she's flirting honeymoon. with other men and they're yeah. gonna argue about it. It's, that's not a solid start. I think that also that probably must have been a problem before too. Like that usually oh, doesn't yeah. just like come up all of a sudden. Usually you don't like go through your whole like relationship, you know, have the proposal, the engagement, then you get married and on the honeymoon, it's like, oh, you do that? Right, no, exactly. It's like, this is something You've done that. that has definitely happened. Well, Jennifer was on Oprah in 2007 and said, quote, I remember being at the casino. I remember being around George. I remember very vaguely leaving the casino area to go to this revolving bar, and then I remember nothing. That's so weird how it just like totally blacks out right there. I when I question any time someone who was not bopped on the head, 
when they say, I don't remember anything. Yeah, I just have no recollection of that whatsoever. It's, it's just not believable. George stayed behind for more shots and drinks with Rusty and his friends, but it's now when the bar closes that conflicting stories start to pop up. That's always when conflicting stories pop up. So this is after the casino slash bar extravaganza that sure. they were having. Rusty says he and his friends helped George back to his room because he was too drunk to get there on his own. Oh, what nice guy. Which, like, this is your honeymoon also, guys. Yeah. Like, I don't know. That's just, like, priority one was not getting, like, blackout. No, definitely not. No. You want to remember it. Maybe, maybe we're just different. Well, I guess so. When they got there, they say Jennifer wasn't there. They looked for her a bit and then took George back to his room and left. This entire thing, I'm just like, I, yeah. A lot of weird stuff. Well, a man in the cabin next to George and Jennifer's says he heard loud partying, telling ABC News, at approximately 4.05 in the morning, we were awakened by what I would describe as cheering. Multiple individuals in the room. It sounded like they were encouraging somebody to do shooters or, you know, chug a beer. Do shooters. That would be me. <laughs> I'd <laughs> be the be one in the, in the next door being like, I don't know, they were loud. <laughs> the neighbor says he then heard arguing and then men say goodnight and witness three men leaving George's cabin. Rest oh, that's Wait, that's so spooky to hear arguing. And then I like, for some reason, picture it as like, good night. And yes. then they all just leave. That's mm -hmm. what I picture. That's ominous as hell. Rusty says no one stayed behind with George and that he and his friends went back to their cabin and ordered room service, which is like real nice. You didn't make sure that he was like, okay. Yeah. The man next door then says he heard one man's voice furniture being moved on the balcony and then quote there was a couple of minutes of total silence and then we heard what i would have to describe as a horrific thud oh no the sound was so loud it reverberated through our cabin my first thought was that somebody had fallen out on the balcony and he's like but i didn't check <laughs> but i went to sleep no, <laughs> no. uh meanwhile at 4 30 a.m ship security found jennifer passed out in a corridor and took her back to her cabin to sleep guys where george was already gone by the way what what's happening here this is so much do you think that she was pretending to be asleep in the corridor because it it would have been very convenient if she was not in the room when he exited um that's kind of what i'm wondering is like maybe she placed herself elsewhere for an alibi elsewhere and uh incapacitated she's like oh i was just so Quote, tired I'm air so bunnies drunk. air bunnies yeah uh so let's talk about rusty and his friends because now i'm curious yeah are they sketch well, FBI investigator Mike Jones does not believe Rusty and his friends alibis and found inconsistencies. All right, so they're sus. Specifically, no account of the room service they allegedly called up after they left George's room. And if you're gonna lie about that, like, Why please would you know lie that? that people that are investigating things do typically look for receipts. It, that is one of the easiest things for them to pull right. is a receipt of payment of something. It's like when people commit a crime and they're like, well, I was at the movies. And they're like, well, can I see your movie stub? And they're like, no, I didn't get one. What? And you're like, what are you? No, really? it printed the wrong time. Yeah. Ugh. Well, the group of men were also accused of rape <gasps> after they all went back to the room of another woman together and were ejected by the ship. Oh, wow. Okay. So we're not killing it. Not good guys. When it comes to like... Morality they were rejected by the ship. The men were never charged with that incident or George's disappearance. Hey. And a videotape has been found of the men making fun of George's disappearance, although a case has still not been brought forward. Uh, see, that's that's very strange. That is a lot. And even if they didn't do it, absolutely terrible. This is even worse. The case is closed. W what? How? The FBI officially closed their investigation. How? Jennifer ultimately received over over $1 million from the cruise line in a settlement. George's family believes the cruise ship withheld important information from them, including evidence that clearly points to a homicide, like blood found on his sheets and furniture repositioned on the balcony. Yeah, because why is there blood on the sheets? It's There's blood on the sheets and there's blood on that lifeboat like somebody was clinging on there. This is supposed to be a very romantic thing. And it's not at and all. it's not. In 2019, one of the men George had been hanging with, Gregory Rosenberg, on the night of his disappearance, was murdered. Ooh. 
His death is still unsolved, and some have insinuated it could potentially be connected to whatever happened on that cruise ship 15 because years earlier. Because maybe he wanted to come out and like say something, and the other people I wonder. caught wind of it, and we're like, and we're like, that's we what's going to happen down. if anybody else does that. So is it an accident, or is there foul play here? Uh, foul play, foul play, and one more time for the people in the back, foul play. This is so much foul play. That's not an accident. I'm going to throw like... I don't know, a yellow card at it or something. Good job, yeah. There you go. Foul play, I think. Wow. There's a lot. Something is going on here. She, The fact that Jennifer was found somewhere else in some random corridor. That's super weird. And had to be brought back. And even better, she didn't just, oh, I woke up in the corner, corridor and I just walked back to my room. No, she made sure she was carried back to the room so somebody had to. And I'm, I'm not saying for sure. Allegedly, I'm just saying somebody would do this would have she had to be carried back to her room so that that like cements her alibi of well i was in the corridor this guy this worker can tell you because he had to bring me back to my room at this point well then you wonder if he brought her back to the room like obviously george was missing by that point you would assume so so already it's like where was he and you're not you're not concerned yeah exactly he wasn't in the room when you got back and then he he's wasn't not there in the when, room you, woke when you woke up. And also, she just woke up and went to like a spa appointment and stuff. And it's like, you were like raging to the point of being unconscious in a corridor. And now you're just waking up and just going about your day. I feel like that does sound like the best time to go to a spa. But like, but going about your day, yeah. Yeah. Come on. It's too much. I don't know. There's a lot here. Well, I definitely agree with the podcast research gods that that was number one. I That's number one, two, 16, 12. That's also the one that I'm just like so fixated on. Like I want to go home and like look more into that. Oh, yeah. And number four with um Tina and yeah. Gabe. That, that was one, just, that one's curious. Yeah, that one haunts me. It A does. lot of these do. A lot of these are like, you can see one side and you can see how they're, they could be accidents and then you can totally see how there's foul play. Yeah. So it's... It's one. It's a really hard one to walk a line on. It truly is. But that's number one. And the only one I really knew a lot about was the Tina Watson case. So mm-hmm. that's the only one I would have been able to say if they didn't put it on. The thing that makes me like, huh, this doesn't fit really, is the one with Shreen Dwani and the murder yep. of his wife, Annie. Mm-hmm. The, I, the, having the taxi, dri- the taxi driver do this with two hitmen for nothing exactly. at all. Doesn't make any sense. Like, they didn't plan that out at all. And then you're the lone survivor. It just doesn't make any sense. And they didn't even try to even fake a ransom or anything. It's just like... That's stupid. Yeah, that one, I'm like, you, come on. You messed up, That bud. That doesn't look good for you. Even if even if he is innocent, it's like, that does not look good for you. No, that stinks because, no. yikes. I would actually, now that I'm thinking of it, I think the most damning clue was what they found on the racetrack. Yeah, and the fact that the winds that supposedly levitated her into the sky and then threw her into the ocean were four to five miles per hour. Yeah, another damning clue for sure. Yeah, I would say so. Yeah, a lot of people on this ki- in, on this list were like, yeah, they'll buy that for sure. Yeah, I don't know. They were very confident in their evil stuff. People like that usually are. Well, thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with another great episode. Remember to follow Crime Countdown on Spotify to get a brand new episode delivered every week. And you can find all episodes of the show and all other podcast shows for free on Spotify as well. And if you like this show, follow at Parcast on Facebook and Instagram and at Parcast Network on Twitter. And if you like us, which I hope you do because you made it this far, you can listen to our other podcast, Morbid, anywhere you listen to podcasts. Or you can follow us on Instagram at Morbid Podcast or on Twitter at A Morbid Podcast. Keep it weird until next Monday and definitely don't go anywhere with your fiance. Marry for love. Bye. Crime Countdown is executive produced by Max Cutler and is a Spotify original from Parcast. It was created by Max Cutler. Sound design by Kristen Acevedo with associate sound design by Anthony Valsic. Fact checking by Cara Mackerline. Research by J.K. Heo. It's produced by John Cohen, Kristen Acevedo, and Jonathan Ratliff. With production assistance by Ron Shapiro. We're your hosts, Ash and Alina Urquhart. <laughs>